Let's open up the word of prayer and then we'll dive into uh, the message this morning. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. As Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, sanctify them through your word, through the truth, your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your truth to understand. You have given us your truth to, to learn. You've given us your truth to preach. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this book, as we begin this study through the book of Hebrews this morning, Lord, I pray that, uh, first of all, that your truth would go forth uh, accurately, that it would go forth with power, that you would use it in our lives, that you would change us, um, not to think the way that another person thinks, but to think the way that you think. I pray that you'd help us to glorify you in the way that we listen, and I pray that you would be glorified in the way that your word goes forth this morning. May you work in us and change us to become like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. As elders, we believe the Lord has led us to uh, the book of Hebrews. We had several different um, books that were kind of on the the list of things that we would like to do. And as we prayed about it, um, we just believe that this is where the Lord has us for the time being, and um, no, it's going to be more than, you know, 13 weeks. You know, there's 13 chapters, but it's going to be a little bit longer than 13 weeks. If you, if you looked at your, uh, your handout this morning, you probably saw it says verses 1 and 2a, and you're probably really starting to get disappointed at this point if we're going to go that slow. I don't know how slow we'll go, but, um, but we'll, we'll kind of discuss that here in a little bit. Uh, when we look at, at the book of Hebrews. But I hope you're excited. In fact, I know that many of you are excited just talking to uh, different people in our life groups and others outside of our life group. Um, there, there is an interesting excitement um, in the church, and, and that, that's encouraging. Um, it is encouraging to talk to other members of the body of Christ and see them excited to study the Word of God. And, uh, and I hope that you are. If you're not, hopefully, uh, as we get into that, you'll, you'll begin to see why we are excited to study the book of Hebrews and to, and to dig into everything that it has for us over the next three years. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Maybe. So this morning, I want to take uh, just a brief period of time and kind of talk through some, of, some overview topics, overview information about the book of Hebrews, and then we'll dive in. Uh, to the first couple verses here of Hebrews. And the first thing that I want to look at are the facts of Hebrews. The facts of Hebrews. All right, these are just kind of some basic things to understand about Hebrews, things to to think about and consider. Um, A lot of times when we go through a book, we did this with James most recently, we, we want to understand the idea of the book outside of just jumping right in and digging through it. We want, to, we want to have a big picture idea of the, book, of the book. We want to understand the historical context. We want to understand the author and who they're writing to and, and what the issues are that they're, that they're dealing with. And we want to, we want to understand those things uh, as much as we can from the Word of God so that we have a, a clear understanding, a, a clearer way of, of interpreting and, and applying the Word of God as we go through it. Um, the book of Hebrews presents a little bit of a problem in some of those areas. Um, it was written most likely during the period of 60 to 70 AD. So 60 to 70 AD, other books were written around that time. 
Uh, I think Ephesians was written in the 60s, if I remember correctly. We've been through that not that long ago. But there's um, a lot of ambiguity about the book of Hebrews, unfortunately. And we'll get to some of that here in a minute. But Hebrews has been a controversial book in the church, even from the earliest time. Um, There were kind of two factions in the early church, what we, what we would look at as early church after the 200s or so, kind of the Eastern faction and the Western faction. And, um, and so not all of them always agreed on everything when it came to uh, the scriptures and, and, and how to interpret scriptures and even what books of the Bible were scriptures. But Hebrews is one of those ones that, you know, there was some, there was some issue with. And, and part of it's because of some of these ambiguities that we have that Hebrews Um, doesn't give us. One interesting fact about Hebrews is that it quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. All right, I don't know if if you've noticed that, if you've been reading ahead in Hebrews, you've noticed there's a lot of of quotations, there's a lot of going back to the Old Testament. And and honestly, that's one of the things that drew us to Hebrews um, as we looked at which uh, books we would be studying next. Um, there is oftentimes in the church a a propensity to preach the New Testament and to focus on the New Testament. And and in many ways, rightly so, because that's talking about the church. But if we're not careful, we can neglect the Old Testament and and put it down or not not think of it as, as something that we need to apply to our lives as well, something that we need to understand. And Hebrews is going to draw us back to the Old Testament over and over and over again, mostly because things that it's going to talk about, probably most of us don't understand. We, we might know some stories about the Old Testament. We might know some vague ideas about the, the Levitical law and things like that. But there's going to be things that in Hebrews that it's going to talk about that we may not have a full understanding of if we've not spent time delving into the Old Testament. So this is going to give us an opportunity not just to preach Hebrews, but also to preach through some things in the Old Testament to help us have a more clear understanding of the Old Testament, specifically the things that Hebrews points us to. So that's another reason why it's not going to be 13 weeks, because there's probably going to be at least one, if not more sermons that are, that are going to be solely Old Testament sermons as we seek to understand what is the writer of Hebrews trying to help us understand about the Old Testament and help us understand about Jesus Christ. Another interesting fact about Hebrews is that it's not like most other letters. Um, if you look at letters from Paul or from Peter or from John, they're, they're a little bit more uh, informal. They're a little bit more conversational. Uh, they obviously have a goal. In fact, we've looked at many of them before. Ob- on, a lot of times they're trying to um, fix some sort of doctrinal heresy and, and, and bring people back into line with Scripture and with Christ. Um, but even in those, uh, those letters, a lot of times it's, it's just kind of a, a flow, right? You just kind of a conversational flow that you have. And, and Hebrews is a little bit different. Hebrews uh, really has more of a, a sermon type feel to it. Um, it. It's very logical. It's very thought out. The, the writer of Hebrews took time and, and thought through all of the arguments that they wanted to make and, he, and lays it out in a very logical and precise path. Um, whereas a lot of times in, in some of the other uh, epistles, it's, it's just a little bit more freeform 
<laughs> sometimes. But, uh, but Hebrews is, is a little bit more like a sermon in that respect. In fact, in Hebrews 13.22, the author refers to this letter as his word of exhortation. Right? He calls it his word of exhortation. Now that could mean a lot of things, but given the structure of Hebrews and, and given the, the call of, of Timothy by Paul, it says to rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort through the scriptures, it's very likely that this was a sermon that was prepared and maybe even preached um, at some location, we don't know where, uh, and then maybe adapted into a letter, or it was just someone who was used to preaching these things, taking the time and, and filling out really what is a very sermonic letter to these people. All right, let's tackle some of these fun things. Who's the author? Who's the author of Hebrews? How many of you think it's Paul? All right, good. All right, we've got, hey, he recognized the name. That's good. <laughs> All right, we've got a few people. How many of you have no clue who it is? All right, that should be everybody. <laughs> um, quite frankly, the, the book of Hebrews doesn't give us any indication really of who the author is. And that's really not abnormal. Um, we, you know, we look at that and we, and we kind of get a little apprehensive sometimes, but it's not abnormal for a New Testament book to do that. In fact, none of the gospels tell us who wrote them. Ever notice that? None of the gospels say this is the gospel of Matthew, or this is the gospel of Mark, or Luke, or John. They don't, they don't tell us that. We know who wrote them through tradition, all right? And so it's not uncommon for a book of the Bible to uh, be written without uh, knowing exactly or telling us exactly who the author is. So we shouldn't look at that as necessarily a problem in accepting uh, this book of the Bible. But what do we know about uh, this author. We, we can see some things about the author and the things that, that he writes about. I would say that the author is probably a Jew. Um, when you look at these opening verses here in, in chapter one, it says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? So he is linking himself to our fathers. Um, he's, he's linking himself to the fathers who have been spoken to by the prophets, the only information we have about that in Scripture is the Hebrews, right? The Jewish people. And so my assumption, based on what he says about himself, is he connects them to uh, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And so I would assume that he is um, a Jew, a, a Hebrew. He's obviously someone who's very familiar with the Old Testament, um, and again, this would coincide with someone ha being, coming from a Jewish background, or at least a Jewish training background. Um, he's very familiar with the Old Testament, so much so that he's able to take the Old Testament and compare it to Christ and see the similarities there and see the differences there as he, as he walks us through this through the book of Hebrews. He's very likely a leader in the church. Um, if he's not an apostle, we don't know. Uh, again, who it is. So we don't know if it was an apostle or if it was somebody else, but he's obviously a leader in the church. He's used to, as I said, uh, preaching and teaching uh, in some capacity, just given the way that we see this, this sermonic attitude of the, of the book of Hebrews and this well thought out letter. Another interesting thing is he, he seems to be a companion of Timothy. If you go back to the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 23, it says this, you should know 
that our brother Timothy has been released. It seems as if Timothy was imprisoned at some point, potentially at Rome. We don't really know uh, for sure. And it says, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So we know that the author is at least in some way connected with Timothy. He's at least planning and hoping to travel with Timothy. So this is somebody more than likely that was a companion of Timothy. We don't know um, if, you know, that could have been Paul. That's maybe one of the marks towards a potential uh, Pauline writing, but uh, my guess is probably not. But it's obviously somebody who is within that sphere of influence, who had some connection with Timothy. He possibly may have been in Rome or a nearby province, um, as he speaks later on in, in chapter 23, verse uh, 24, I think it is. I didn't put this one in my notes. He says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So that could be people that were visiting him from Italy, um, or maybe he's talking about those that are with him in Italy. So it's very possible that he was at least in the area of Italy, potentially even in Rome. So that's things that we do know about the author of Hebrews. We don't know the name, but we, we know some things about him. We, we, we have a little bit of his repu reputation, a little bit of his authority there. All right, so who's the audience? We have the author, which is unknown, and then we have the audience, all right? Who is it? Well, you said, well, it says the letter to the Hebrews, right? It's interesting, this uh, title for this book goes back as far as we can tell. Um, in all the documents that we have, I think, if I remember correctly, every document that we have of Hebrews has this title at the top of it, which is, which is a good sign that that's probably who it's written to. Uh, again, the titles were not necessarily part of the Word of God that was given, but, but it's a good, it's a good um, indicator as to who the audience is. Of course, we don't know in the context it's not, it doesn't tell us who it was specifically written to. Um, obviously, we have other letters that are much more specific. We know that Luke wrote uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts to an individual named Theophilus. Paul wrote to specific churches in, in specific uh, cities or areas like Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, all those different things. And he would often say the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus. And so we know that those books were written to those particular people. Paul also wrote to specific individuals, right? He wrote to Timothy and to Titus, and he wrote to Philemon. James wrote to the 12 tribes that were spread out by the persecution. It's a little bit broader audience, but still he kind of makes it clear who he's talking to. Peter also wrote to those who were spread out by persecution. John wrote both to specific people in his... Uh, First, second, and third John, and he also wrote to specific churches. Um, if you read the beginning of Revelation, it says to the seven churches. Um, so he's writing to specific churches. So we know a lot of scripture, who it was sent to, and, and that helps us understand, helps us get a little bit of an idea of, of the things that, they, that were going on in their culture. Um, but here, really, the only, the only indication um, is this title of Hebrews. And so as we look at the content of Hebrews, we can, we can see that that pretty much matches up with what we see here in the title, even though it doesn't start off with greetings. 
Church of Hebrews. Um, obviously, it wouldn't be Church of Hebrews because there's, you know, one place. It's possible it could have been Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know. But most likely, it was written to Jewish believers. Again, here in verse 1, he says, our fathers, again, showing this kinship between him and those who were of Jewish descent, those, those who had been taught by the prophets. There's a, a, an assumption of familiarity with the Jewish Old Testament among the hearers. You don't see him going through and, and, and re-explaining all the things from the Old Testament to the Hebrews that he's writing to. He's, he's, there's an assumption there that they understand that they're familiar with the Old Testament law, that they're familiar with the Levitical law. And again, uh, it seems like he's, he's kind, of, kind of a broad audience in mind. It doesn't, he's not pinpointing a specific city. Maybe this was one of the letters that was specifically intended to be passed around from place to place. Um, he says there in, at the end in verse 24, he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints, right? He's kind, of, he's kind of opening this up and saying, hey, this is going to a broad group of people. So make sure that the greeting goes out to a broad group of people. So while we don't know specifically the church or we don't know specifically the area, we, we can be confident that this book is written to the Hebrews, But what is the goal? What is the aim? Again, the use of the term exhortation here is important. Uh, The author here is developing a letter that's designed to preach truth. This is not just a letter that's designed to to encourage and say, hey, you know, hope you guys are doing well. You know, here's some some things that I think you should, you know, think about and consider. This This is a letter that is designed to take someone systematically through truth and to teach them, and to call them to action. Here in Hebrews 12, 2, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There are several warnings in the book of Hebrews, and we'll get to those as we go through. But one of the main ones that, that seems to be in focus is the idea that these Jewish believers would begin to drift away from the truth of the gospel. That they would begin to follow after old traditions of, of the Jewish Levitical system. Or they might even begin to pull in other ideas from the Greek world around them as far as things that they could add to this idea of the gospel. And, and the, the goal here is to show that all these other things are inferior to the gospel. The gospel, the Christian religion, is greater than all these other things. And really, that's what we see through the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. This author is going to go systematically through all these different things, especially the Old Testament. All these religious views and religious rights and understandings, and he's going to go through one by one by one and say, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And so the warning for the Hebrews here is to not fall away from the true gospel. The goal is to lift up Christ in the mind of the Jewish believers who may be in danger of falling back in a more tangible religious activity by showing that Christ is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but also superior to it. There is nothing greater than to pursue Christ himself. That is the goal 
the aim of Hebrews. Secondly, I want to look at, we looked at the facts of Hebrews. Let's look at the function of Hebrews. Uh, why, why Hebrews? Why today? And for however long it takes. Um, Hebrews, again, had a little bit of a rocky start in the early church, what we, what we call the early church fathers. Uh, but there were some early church fathers who uh, accepted it pretty much right away. You might recognize some of these names. Clement of Rome, uh, Origen, it's G-E-N. Uh, Jerome, Augustine are some of the early church fathers who, um, who accepted the book of Hebrews, who taught and quoted from the book of Hebrews in, in many of their writings. Um, despite the lack uh, of a known author, or even for sure where this was written to, there was, there was a sense of, of apostolic authority. By that I mean it, it has this authority to it that seems to be from an apostle or somebody who was very closely related to apostles, somebody who, who knew the word of God, who proclaimed the word of God truthfully and accurately. And so it's very clear that this is something that is part of God's word. When we read it, when we study it, it just has an authority that is intrinsic to itself. And that is not something that any work of man could have. The content itself is the main reason, really, why the book of Hebrews was accepted. With all the ambiguity that there is around it, it's the content, it's the teaching of Hebrews that draws men in. So why do we need to study it today at Liberty Hills Bible Church? Three reasons. One, Hebrews is going to bring into focus the Old Testament and link it with the New Testament. I don't know about you, but it's, it's often very easy to focus on the New Testament and maybe just read a little bit. You know, maybe you're doing your one-year Bible reading and so you're slugging through the Old Testament and you're just, man, I can't wait until I get through all of these names and I get through all of these kings and I get through all of these prophets and, and all these different things that, you know, I don't really understand. I don't really, it doesn't seem to really affect me. I can't wait till we get to, to Jesus, right? We get to the New Testament. And then we hit the New Testament. It's like, hit the ground running. This is the stuff I know. This is the stuff I love. Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. And that's a good thing. And Hebrews is going to drive us there. It's going to bring into focus the Old Testament and link the New Testament with it. It's going to bring into focus the supremacy of Christ in all areas of life. As we go through the book of Hebrews, I hope that you do not get tired of the constant reminder of the supremacy of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. He is above all things. He is before all things. And Hebrews is going to, over and over and over and over again, bring that reality back into our thinking. Thirdly, Hebrews brings into focus the significance of Christ's work in our relationship with God. One of the themes of Hebrews is, is the necessity of a redeemer, the necessity of someone, of a, of a mediator, of someone to come in between and bring us back into a right relationship with God. And, and then the, the beauty that we have in that relationship with God as adopted sons, as those who can now come before the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're going to see that over and over again in the book of Hebrews as well. Basically, the book of Hebrews is going to point us to Christ. 
And that's why it's important for us here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. Those are the facts and the functions of Hebrews. Thirdly, and we'll kick off really the the preaching service with this, the foundation of Hebrews. The foundation of Hebrews. This is found in the first one and a half verses. This is found right here in this opening statement, the foundation of Hebrews. He says again, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I want to direct your attention, first of all, to two words, and that is that God spoke. God spoke. God has spoken. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has spoken to man? We look at Romans chapter 1 and we see that God has revealed himself through creation. It says that we are without excuse because even the things that we see, we are, we are able to understand that there is a God, that, that he, is, he is a God and that he is powerful. And so we are without excuse. God has revealed himself through his creation. He's revealed himself through conscience. I forget the passage and I didn't write it down, but also in Romans it says that those who who do not have the law, the Gentiles who don't have the law, do what is right because the law is written on their hearts. God has given us a conscience and he reveals his moral truth to us through that conscience. So he's revealed himself through creation, he's revealed himself through conscience, but even more importantly, he's revealed himself through communication. It says God spoke. God has spoken. God speaking is a revelation of himself to mankind in a different way from creation. It's it's in a greater way. It's in a more specific way. It's what we call specific revelation. We say that creation and conscience are general revelation. It's, It's to everyone. But specific revelation tells us the things that we need to hear most. Just specific revelation tells us that we are sinners. Tells us that we, have, we are under the, the wrath of a holy God because of our sin. It tells us of Jesus Christ and the redemption that we can have through Him. And that is the communication that God has given. He has spoken to man. Not only has God spoken, but He's spoken in many different ways. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's spoken at many times and he's spoken in many ways. Uh, That many times could also be interpreted in in many parts. Um, And so we have the idea here that God has spoken in different ways and and in different amounts at different times. Nothing that God had given prior to the New Testament was the complete revelation of his will. That's why we have the New Testament. That's why we have Jesus Christ. Because everything before that was an incomplete. Uh, Paul gives us, gives us the idea of looking at a mirror darkly. Looking at something that isn't quite in focus. It doesn't quite make sense. We don't really have a complete understanding of it. And that is the Old Testament. Hebrews calls it types and shadows. And so God has spoken, and He has spoken in many different ways. He's spoken verbally and audibly to people in in the Old Testament. I think of Adam and Noah and Abraham. 
He's spoken through angels. I think of Gideon and Lot, first two that came to mind. Uh, he's spoken through visions and dreams, Jacob and, and Daniel and uh, Joseph, people that you know, were interacting with Joseph. So God spoke in many different ways at different times and in incomplete ways to man. So God has spoken and he's spoken in many ways and at many times. But God has also spoken through imperfect human representatives. He's spoken through imperfect human representatives. I'm sure you could probably think of a few. He's spoken through fearful men like Elijah, like Moses, like Gideon. They were prophets and judges, men who were to proclaim the word of God, to lead the people of Israel. God spoke even through disobedient men. First name that comes to mind is Jonah. Didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach the word. So God put him in a fish. And eventually he did. He preached the word. And the word had an impact. He spoke through disobedient men. He spoke through sinful men. One of the most beloved books of the Bible is the book of Psalms. And yet, we know one person who authored so many of the songs was not a perfect person. King David disobeyed God in many ways, morally, as a murderer, an adulterer. He counted the people when he wasn't supposed to. God has spoken even through sinful men. Of course, every man we know Romans tells us is sinful. Every person that has been a representation of God's voice to man throughout the ages was an imperfect human representative. God has spoken through commands and laws and prophecies and songs and history and poetry. All of these different ways to reveal who He is, what He is like, and what He requires of us. There's so much truth and so much revelation about God, and yet we read the passages of the Old Testament and we see that it's incomplete. That it only goes so far. Until Christ. Verse 2, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He's spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken now through the perfect human representative, His Son. The perfect human representative is Christ. This is why the subtitle of our, of our series is Christ Preeminent. Because although the Old Testament is the Word of God, God has spoken through it. It is incomplete. It's incomplete until the more complete testimony of God through Jesus Christ came. Why do we put so much emphasis on Christ? and the gospel here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. The reason is because Christ is the superior and final word of God to man. 
Let me say that again. Christ is the superior and final word of God to man. Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a moral person. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He is God communicating truth to man. Have you ever thought about that? We look at all the great things that Jesus has done, and we look at him as our Savior, but he's not just those things. He is God's revelation of his truth to mankind. And he is the superior and the complete and the final revelation of God's truth to us. You know, we live in a world where truth is relative, and in many, many people's opinions, it's non-existent. 2020, there was a poll taken by the Cultural Research Council, Research Center of Arizona Christian University, asking people what they believed about truth. Most Americans reject an abs- any absolute boundaries regarding morality. That's just most general Americans. 58% of Americans believe that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. Whatever you think, truth is, that's true. What's sad is that only 43% of born-again Christians still embrace absolute moral truth. What's interesting is that they still believe that God is the basis of truth. The majority of Bible-believing Christians still believe that God is the basis of truth, and yet only 43% of them embrace the idea of absolute moral truth. The survey found that most common, the most common notion is that God is the basis of truth, but only for a minority of four out of ten adults, 42%. Another four out of ten rely on inner certainty, whatever I think. 15% rely on scientific proof. 5% rely on tradition. 4% on the public consensus to know what truth is. The remaining two out of every 10 adults, 20%, said that either there is no such thing as truth or that they do not know the basis of truth. There's this idea in the world that everyone has their own truth. That your truth is made up of your experiences and your desires and, and your ideas and what makes sense to you. The reality is that God exists and that He has spoken and that He has told us what is true. And He has done that finally here through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14, very familiar verse says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. Have you thought about that picture? God has spoken to us now through His Son. He is the literal Word of God in the flesh, in the the way that He lived, in the things that He spoke. He is the Word of God. He is the truth. We just celebrated that reality a few weeks ago at Christmas. We've been celebrating it for the last two months as we went through our Advent series and and saw 
all of the realities of Jesus Christ coming to earth and being born as a human, fully God and fully man, the Word of God made flesh. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you want to know truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the very Word of God in flesh. I am the truth. John 8, 31-32 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. He is the proclaimer of truth. He says, if you abide in my words, then you will know truth. And that truth will set you free. John 5, 46, Jesus is speaking. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, Luke 24, 27. And, the beginning, and beginning with Moses, this is talking about uh, the road to Emmaus. Jesus is with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. To Emmaus. He says, and the beginning... And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verses a little bit later in that chapter, he's meeting with the disciples in verses 44 and through 49. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why did I read all those? Because he is the focus of the Old Testament. All those things that God spoke before He sent His Son were about His Son. He's the focus of the Old Testament. He's not just the Word of God in flesh. He's not just the truth Himself. He's not just the proclaimer of truth. He is the focus of the truth of the Old Testament. John 16, 12-14 says this, I still have many things to say to you. This is in the upper room with his disciple. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is proclaimed by the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 24-29, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. He is the truth proclaimed by the apostles. Why is it that almost every New Testament epistle begins with doctrine of Christ? It's because He is the focus of Scripture. He is the source of truth. And in Him we find application for our lives. 2 Peter 1, 16-21 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For, we received, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the Spirit will teach you about me. The New Testament, the writings that we have, are about Christ because He is the supreme and final Word of God. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He is the glory of what is yet to come. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20 gives us our mission as well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is the truth that we proclaim. He has called us to make disciples. In order for someone to be a disciple, they must know the one they are following. They must know about him. They must know him personally. They must constantly be learning from him and engaging with him. They must know what he has spoken. They must be taught to obey. If you grow tired of preaching about Christ, then you're missing the point of Scripture. If you're looking for answers apart from Christ, you're missing the point of Scripture. If you're focusing your spiritual life on anything but Christ, you're missing the point of Scripture. Scripture is the only absolute and authoritative source of truth because Scripture is all about Christ, the final and perfect Word of God 
to man. Is that how you view Scripture? So often in the church, we allow ourselves to be satisfied with truthy things. These truths that we find out in the world and we find even amongst other believers that so often dazzle us. And they take our attention and they focus it on other things besides Christ. My question this morning is, what is your truth? What are you looking to for truth? God has spoken. He's spoken through the Old Testament. He's spoken through the New Testament. All of it is about Jesus Christ. Who is your truth? Is it a political figure? Is it someone in your family? Is it just a a human person even here in the church? Or is your truth Jesus Christ? Where do you go for truth? What's interesting is that when we go down the road of seeking these other truths, when we, when we, we take these truthy things that may be true, but pale in comparison to the supremacy of Christ, when we begin to get sucked into those things, we often spend much more time trying to make disciples of those truths than we do disciples of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been caught up in that? Maybe it's a specific theological persuasion. And you really just want people to come over to your theological persuasion, not necessarily get people focused on Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're caught up in lots of good things, but you've lost your focus on the best thing. John Snyder said this, it is a danger for us to fall in love with truth things because we love being true and not because we love Jesus Christ. Do we love the truth because we like being right? Or do we love the truth because we love Christ? Because He is the truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what truth is. Maybe you don't know where to turn for the answers in your marriage or the answers to your money problems or your feelings of depression or your parenting struggles or just when life doesn't make sense and you don't know where to turn. Jesus is saying to you this morning, look at me. Look at me. I am truth. I will set you free. If you find yourself in that situation this morning when we're done, feel free to come find me or Pastor Eric or Pastor Andy or Honestly, many people here in the church, we would love to show you where you can find the truth of Christ. How you can know the truth that is in Christ and how you can be set free and be given hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you know the truth, but you've allowed other truths of men to become more important to you than the truths of Christ. The truths of Christ have become boring to you because they're not as flashy. They're not as eminent in our current day and age. Perhaps those truths make you feel more accepted by others, or maybe they make you feel more intelligent than others, more informed than others. Maybe they make you even feel more spiritual than others. 
Jesus is saying to you this morning, look at me. I am truth. Learn from me. Come back to Christ this morning. Find your satisfaction and joy in Him and Him alone because it is Christ who is preeminent. Alistair Begg, I love this quote. I think I put it up on a slide. It says this, The Bible is a book about Jesus. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament He is predicted In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the Acts, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. In the book of Revelation, He is expected. As we look at the book of Hebrews, as we gaze at the preeminence of Christ in all these different aspects, we'll discover in the coming months. May we never grow weary of seeing Him high and lifted up. May we never grow weary of revealing the wonder of the Gospel. May we never grow weary of finding our source of truth in Christ. Who He is and what He has said and what He has done as we study Him in the book of Hebrews. And as we study this book, may Christ truly be preeminent. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. And Lord, even though we don't have the opportunity that the apostles did to to walk with Christ and to see Him and to hear Him and to to touch Him and to engage with Him and to ask Him questions and and all the different things that they were able to do, Lord, we, we can still know You. We can still know Christ. We can still be changed by Him. We still have truth because You have given it to us in Your Word. The Word made flesh has now been recorded by those whom He taught. And we have their recording, we have their written Word that was given to them by the Holy Spirit as He spoke about Christ. Lord, as as we go through this book of Hebrews, there's going to be many, many times we come back to the preeminence of Christ and we see once again, that Christ is better than all these things. And, and Lord, I pray that you would just dig into our hearts, Lord, that we would not be people who are apathetic about the Old Testament and about these things that Christ has done and these realities, but that we would, we would chew on them, that we would memorize them, that we would meditate on them, that we would dig into them even deeper, that we would seek to understand Christ on a deeper level, that we would seek to know Him on a deeper level, that we would seek to worship Him and glorify Him and praise Him and be like Him in a way that we've never been before. And may through this study, Lord, You make Christ preeminent in our hearts that are so easily drawn to idols that are so easily drawn to our own desires, so easily drawn to the things of this world, Lord, put Christ on the throne of our lives. Reveal Him to us in a way that we've not seen Him before. So that You would be glorified. So that our lives would be changed. Lord, we pray that You would be with the final song this morning, that that the reality of these words would be true that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.